Amen. Good morning. What an important thing it is and a joy to be able just to pray together as believers in Christ. Amen? That very action if someone in a certain countries on planet Earth saw us doing, we would all be in danger of death. So don't take that for granted that we have the opportunity to pray, the opportunity to sing. God has blessed us and has given us tremendous opportunity to shine His glory in this country and in our community. Philippians chapter 3. If you want to go ahead and turn there, Philippians chapter 3. This morning we are... I am giving a conclusion to a four-week series that, that we've been going through. Adam's preached um, called Activate. Um, following our... Uh, or having to do with our... Activate program, our church program that we're going through over the next three years uh, to determine what areas we need to get healthier in, to evaluate. One of the things that, that churches so often are afraid to do in our country is to just sit down and put everything on the table and to evaluate where are we. Not what, what do we think about how we're doing or compare ourselves to other churches, but actually where are we in relationship to where God wants us to be? And that's why I'm excited about the program. And, and as Adam uh, preached about the last uh, four weeks, he, he talked about evangelism and prayer were two of those areas where, although I'm proud of our church, I'm proud of where God has led us and where He is taking us, we cannot be satisfied. We cannot be satisfied until we are with Him in heaven. He has given us a great mission and a great calling. And we can't ever relax and sit back and say, Oh, I think I've done enough. God never gives us permission to think and feel that way. And so we've uh, spent the last four weeks looking at evangelism and prayer and just talking about this uh, three-year program that we're going through with our team and with you as a congregation to, to evaluate and to plan and to... to set our eyes on the future. And so this morning, I kind of want to offer a, a closing message to activate, called Captivate. And I'm going to get to why I use that word a little bit later on. Why don't we pray, and then we'll jump in. Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship together. We pray you would open your word to us this morning. I pray you would loosen my tongue to say the words that you want said this morning. I pray you would soften hearts in this room this morning and those who are listening somewhere else. I pray, God, that your word would come in and would melt the hardness and the coldness that resides inside each of our hearts and minds. This sinful brokenness that we not only suffer from, but sadly embrace on a daily basis. I pray you would come in and override all of that this morning. That you would come in and shine brightly and show us who you are and who you want us to be. And that you would give us the power of transformation this morning through your Spirit. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The devil is a preacher. He is a preacher. He's not a little red figure with horns and a pitchfork. He would look more like a televangelist. Amen? And all God's people said amen. 
The devil is a preacher. In Revelation chapter 12, he is called the deceiver of the whole world. He is also called the accuser of the brothers, of the Christians, the brethren, because he accuses them day and night before God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, the Bible says that, that the devil, that Satan, can disguise himself as an angel of light. So he has this ability to, to not only transform, and I don't just, I'm not just necessarily talking about the, the physical there, but he has this ability to manipulate, to transform. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, it speaks of him blinding the minds of the unbelievers. That those who do not know Christ, who do not possess the Spirit of God, they are susceptible to a great degree. I don't understand it all, but the Bible says it, and so I believe it. It says that he has the ability to blind the minds of the unbelievers, of those who have not trusted in the cross of Christ. In Mark chapter 12, Jesus spoke of of the end times, and that in those times there would be false prophets who would come and who would deceive and would trick the world, and if possible, that they would deceive the elect of God, the chosen of God, those who God has reached out and, and had mercy upon and saved. He says that if possible, these, these who are under the authority of Satan would deceive the elect into believing lies. Antichrist, false prophets. In Ephesians chapter 6, Paul speaks of us standing against the schemes of the devil. The Bible says that we are not ignorant of his schemes. That's the good thing about it. Though we face a great adversary, we are not ignorant of his schemes. We know them from this book. We know them from the Spirit who guides our hearts and our lives and keeps us aware of His schemes. In chapter 12, in Ephesians, I'll read it for you. In chapter 12 of Ephesians chapter 6, right after that, Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God. The devil is a preacher, and he is influencing the world. Now, I'm not trying to say that every person is a devil or that Satan is directly responsible for every act of deception or every sinful lie on this planet. He can only be in one place at one time. But rather, I want to say that he's fundamentally involved in every act of deception that goes on in this world. All of the deceptive influences in this world and in our culture at some point or some time, have an influence in His work. Or have been influenced by His work. He is the author of strong delusions. Strong delusions. And you kind of, I feel this sometimes when something is just absurdly believed. Take, for instance, the recent, the, the intensified battle in our country over gay marriage and homosexuality and gender identity issues. It's almost reaching the point of absurdity to me. It has reached the point of absurdity to me. Whether you're watching sports on ESPN, who is a big supporter, or the Olympics on NBC, 
All I want to do is watch an athletic event. And somewhere, somehow, there's a plug for how beautiful this lifestyle is or how sweet this love is or the struggle that so-and-so has gone through. And it's, it's a lot of bait and switch. It's a lot of pretty stories. It's a lot of emotion and music. These people know what they're doing and they're trying to deceive. They're trying to trick and to lie and to go against what God has said. So whether it's sports on ESPN, Olympics on NBC, sitcoms on ABC, or reality TV on Fox, the goal is to push, to normalize sinful perversions regarding marriage and sexuality. And it's to a point of being obsessive on the part of these media outlets. And this didn't start recently. We've seen this downgrade, this slow decline over the period of years and decades the lies, the emotional appeals. It's in movies. It's now in cartoons. Organizations now pressure movie companies making children movies to include characters that represent these values. These alternative lifestyles in order to teach and to promote tolerance. It's in our businesses Whoever thought we'd have an argument about who can go to what bathroom? But we're here, folks. It makes you look back at Leviticus when they're talking about the you know, bestiality and, and all the weird laws. And, and you would say at one point, you would say, how could people be at that point? How could they be so depraved? How could they be so crazy? We're civilized in America. We're better. We're, this is 2016. And yet I feel like we need to go back and read Leviticus and realize that we too can get to points of depravity that we never thought we could get to if we don't turn to God. The devil is preaching and the world is listening. And the world is pushing all things devious regarding human sexuality and the institutions that God made trying to destroy His original plans. It's a strong delusion. And our country's in trouble. Many of you have had these conversations. I've had these conversations. It dawned on me, it really hit home when I went on a mission trip to Ukraine this summer. A country, I was, a country in war. A country that we were going to minister to and the pastors there wanted to pray for America because of what's going on here with our abortion and gay marriage and things like this. And they're, they're worried because they can see that these things are indicative of a, of a root problem that we have. That we are being destroyed by immorality from the inside. But you know, our churches are also in danger. Our church is in danger because when we see these things, and I've been guilty of it too. We can react in the wrong way. Now you know the caricatures of the person that's, you know, the street preacher that's condemning everybody. I'm not necessarily talking about that. But let me give you three ways that we can react wrongly to things like this. To this battle that we're fighting. To the, these delusions that are going on. Here's three wrong ways that the church and that Christians and that you as an individual can react. The first thing is that you can try to escape. You can see this stuff going on 
in the world, and you can try to escape. You can try to retreat to your nice, quiet little neighborhood. You can try to retreat to the lake. You can try to back out of the conversation. You can try to just sit back and really just hope for the rapture. Nothing irritates me more. And this is where we've come is that that we have become inactive, I think, to a large degree because we have convinced a generation of Americans that they don't need to get involved in changing the culture and in changing lives. They just need to sit back and wait on Jesus to save them. Wait on His return. Don't get involved in the fight. Just board up your house and just sit and wait. Now you might think that's a caricature and that isn't really what's going on, but I guarantee you it is. And the reason that I know that is because I see, more, I see people more excited about Jesus coming back and rescuing them from the terrible things going on here than I see brokenness about people being apart from Christ and not knowing Him and about God being dishonored on this earth. If our hearts are the hearts of Christ, we won't feel that way. We will want people to be saved. We will want people to glorify Christ. We will want the evil to end. We will be thinking about our children and our grandchildren that will be here after we are gone. And we will get in the fight for them, for the world, for the glory of God. I, uh, I was in Oklahoma recently and I was talking to an older pastor, an older gentleman, and he was talking about a... I asked him how Doug Brewer was doing. Doug Brewer is a pastor of VMA Church in Oklahoma. Some of you may know Brother Doug, and I went to, to, to college with some of his children, and I asked this gentleman, I said, how's Brother Doug? And he said, he said, oh, Brother Josh, he's broken every time I see him. He's just always broken. He says we're not doing enough. We're not reaching enough people. He's just broken all the time. You know what? That's a church I can go to because I know that man's serious. Maybe you're sitting back and say, "Oh, you know, you can't, you can't be, you can't, you gotta be, you can't be sorrowful all the time." Well, Jesus was a man of sorrow, as the Bible said. He wept over Jerusalem as he saw the depravity and he saw the evil. He didn't sit back and try to tell himself a lie. He looked at it objectively and he said, "I'm, I'm weeping for them. I'm sorrowful for them. I'm broken for them. Is there joy in the Christian life? Of course, I'm not saying that, but there is real." authentic brokenness. If there is no brokenness in your Christian life, I doubt whether it is a Christian life. There should be brokenness for the world, brokenness for your own sin, brokenness that God is not lifted up and worshipped and glorified as He deserves. So we can't escape. We can't escape. The second mistake that we make is that we conform. We have so many riding the fence, especially on the this homosexuality, gay marriage issue. They're riding the fence. We are kind of being deceived. Or maybe it's just ignorance and we haven't figured it out, but there's all these different opinions and philosophies, and it hasn't just happened with this issue. The church has, all throughout history, conformed to the pressures of the world. They've given in. They've syncretized. The world says, oh, you can't be like that. And the church says, well, okay, okay. We're not called to conform. We're called to be in the world, but not of the world. Amen? The third mistake that we can make is that we can be hypocritically judgmental. And what do I mean by that? I mean that we can focus on the sin that we don't like and we can leave all our stuff alone. 
Is homosexuality, gay marriage, all of that bad? Of course it is. Does it need to be challenged? Of course it does. But when the church picks on this issue, when in the past many Christians and churches have failed to fight against issues like divorce, gambling, pornography, selfishness, I heard a great phrase the other day that, that called us the selfie generation. The selfie generation. I thought, well, that about sums it up. How about pride? If you're accurate with the sin that God hates, at some point we're all going down. At some point we're all going to get confronted about something because we all have sin in our lives. We're going to get called out at some point. Here's the point I want to get at. This is all leading up to to what I really want to talk about. What the world needs is not merely this hypocritical judgment from us. We do need to attack the issues. We do need to speak the truth in love. But just speaking the truth is not going to result in the transformation that we're wanting. I have thrown out some of the, in my mind... And historically speaking, some of the greatest arguments for the existence of God, for the support of, of, of the uh, traditional marriage and family. I've thrown out evidence. I've spent years studying these things. I can sit down with a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness and I can argue from Scripture. And I can win the argument on most points that they bring up. Every now and then some kind of crazy thing they bring up and I'll have to get back to them on something. But I'm accustomed to to dishing out truth to people. But you know what? The truth, it it doesn't always change people. That sounds weird to say. Here's what I'm getting at. What the world needs from you is not merely for you to argue why you're right and they're wrong. What the world needs is not merely for you to argue why you're right and they're wrong. On gay marriage or any issue. Do you need to speak the truth in love? Of course you do. But in Romans chapter 1 verse 18, it tells us that men can suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know. Or at some point they did. That's the dirty little secret. Every human being has a conscience with the moral code of God written on their hearts. Adam knew it was wrong to eat of the the fruit. He did it anyway. His problem wasn't that he didn't have the information, didn't have the truth. His problem was he had a sick and rebellious heart. That's what all of us have. That's why we need Christ. All sinners are responsible for their sin. I'm not saying that. They are absolutely responsible. But they will suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And so the problem is not that the world is ignorant. And the problem isn't that we need to to fight harder and advocate for the truth alone. That sounds weird to say. So what is the answer that I'm getting at? What do we need? What is the answer for the world and what is the answer as far as what path we need to head down? Now a lot of people in our day and age, because we're doers, we're goers, 
We like to accomplish things. We're task-oriented. We might say, activate, activate's the answer. Our church needs to activate. We need to get going. We need to do more things. We need to reach out, and we need to, to touch more people with the gospel. We need to make disciples of all nations. We need to preach the gospel, and then we, need to, we need to do this and do that. We need to get involved with the schools. We need to get a five-year mission plan. We need to pray more. We need to evangelize more. We can go through. We just need to be more active. More effort. More work. That's part of it. But that's not where we start. That's not the root of the answer. Not even Christianity, as some people define, not even an upstanding moral lifestyle, not even holiness. That's not what people need. That's, that's important. What do we need? Look in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3, I'll read the first 12 verses. I want, to see, I want to see if you notice, read along with me, see if you notice anything interesting about this passage. Paul writing to the Roman colony of Philippi while he was in prison, he told them this, the, the Christians there. He said, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Amen. Countless times in this passage, you see Paul's heart. And Paul's heart is that he wants to experience Jesus. He wants to know Jesus Christ. To be captivated by Christ. By God in general, Father, Son, Spirit, but by Jesus, His Lord. Countless times, I count it all rubbish for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as my Savior. That's Paul's heart. His desire is to know Jesus and to spend his life for Jesus, to glorify Jesus. Now, this is important because you may be thinking, oh, that's really sweet of Paul. That's really super Christian of Paul. He's got this really intense desire to know and love Jesus. I wish I were like that as a Christian. But Paul's a super Christian. You know what's condemning and what I've thought about all week? This is not some super Christian's preference. 
or super ability. This is the identity of a Christian to begin with. Listen to Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Or Matthew 22, verse 37. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Paul loved Jesus. He walked with Jesus. That's the answer. That's what we need, folks. Not to be told to activate alone. That's what we're trying to get our church to do is to activate, but if we just push a bunch of religious activity on you, we don't have love for our Savior because our hearts are dull and cold to Him. We're heading in the wrong direction. The activity and the zeal and the passion that we're to have as a church, as Wyatt Baptist Church and you as an individual Christian, needs to come up out of the well of your love for Jesus and your daily fellowship with Him. This is the pitfall of so many of our Christians in America. We're so learned, learned, intellectual. We are here at this church, and I praise God for that. But there's a pitfall to being the intellectual church or the mission-minded church or the church known to be gospel-centered. Praise God that we're gospel-centered. But if that's all we are, we have nothing. Paul said if we have love, then we have nothing. And if we don't have Jesus overflowing out of us, because we are fellowshipping and communing with Him in our daily lives, then we're missing the whole point. We're just being religious. We're just being active. Some of us have in our minds what the Christian life looks like and we try to live out that idea on a daily basis rather than following Jesus on a daily basis. You understand what I'm saying? I do this all the time. I focus on what the plan of the Christian life is rather than Jesus. This is why so many of us live lives following a Christian path and coming to church and yet sometimes we feel so hollow and so empty is because we have all the mechanics of the Christian life. We're coming to church. Occasionally we'll read our Bible. We'll pray. We're involved in all these different ministries. We're trying to keep ourselves from sin. We're preaching all the good morals and values that you preach in the South, in the Bible Belt of America, and yet we feel dead and cold inside. It's because we hadn't spent two seconds with Jesus. It's something that you feel. Last night, I probably looked crazy. I hadn't, I hadn't felt this way in a while to this degree, but I was, I was walking around Walmart late at night, and somebody probably thought I was singing, but I was so pumped up about Jesus and the fact that He loved me. That he would die for me on a cross in my place. And I was singing songs quietly about Jesus. 
And I tried to shut up a few times. Maybe it said I was really tired, but somebody probably thought I was crazy. That guy's over there talking to himself. I was just singing about Jesus. I thought about fist pumping a couple times. I thought, no, that would, you know, I can't do that. When's the last time you just had a fist pumping moment where you were excited about Jesus Christ? We'll cheer like a fool at a football game. Jesus. Golf clap. Football game. Woo! Like a nut. I'll do it too. We're not on the right track, folks. We're in danger of merely thinking about our relationship with Christ rather than feeling and experience a relationship with Christ. Do you think Paul just felt it? Or do you think what we read in Philippians 3 showed that the man lived it? He felt it. He knew God. He knew Christ. That's why he had power with people. Because he wasn't just talking theory. He wasn't just talking doctrine. He wasn't just talking morality. He was speaking to them about Jesus. Now he's what they needed. How He is who can change us. How everything pales in comparison to Him. Listen to this quote from A.W. Tozer, the, the famous preacher. He said, how tragic that it is, or how tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking of God done for us by our teachers. Let me read that again. How tragic that we in this dark day have had our seeking of God done for us by our teachers. Everything is made to center upon the initial act of accepting Christ. And we are not expected thereafter to crave any further revelation of God to our souls. We have been snared in the coils of a spurious logic which insists that if we have found Him, we need no more seek Him. Thus the whole testimony of the worshiping, seeking, singing church on that subject, on the subject of seeking Jesus, has been crisply set aside. What is Tozer saying? He's saying that you and I should never be satisfied with our amount and intensity of fellowship with our God and with Jesus our Savior. Not even on our best days we shouldn't be satisfied. We should seek always to go deeper with Christ. To know Him more clearly. To be captured, captivated by Him. You know, those of you that, that know Him, you know that's why you're in this thing to begin with. You know what that feels like. To have that joy in Christ. To have that relationship with Christ. But maybe your heart has grown cold lately. In reality, this could be the most deadly thing to our church. This subtle, deceptive thing. How we can carry on church programs. Carry on church growth initiatives. Carry on service in our community. Carry on mission trips. And yet we are in danger of the most deadly thing ever. That's getting away from Jesus. Getting away from Christ. And that's going to hinder our ability to activate the way God wants us to activate. 
If we, don't, if we aren't captivated with Jesus, we have no well to draw from. Put aside for a minute our church's mission, and let's just think about you. Think about how Jesus has loved you. Jesus loved you by dying. He didn't require religious activity out of you. He required trust. He said, I've done it all. I want you to trust me. And he bled and he died. And he was buried and three days later, he defeated death and he rose from the grave. And not only has he set you on the path of life, he has equipped you for the journey of life. He has given you his spirit. We don't teach and think on this enough. He has given you the Holy Spirit, His Spirit, the Counselor, the Guide to lead us through this life, to grow in us the fruit of God, which is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, and self-control. Such awesome and amazing things He has put the Spirit in you already. You already have what you need. You need nothing else. And He sits in heaven and He intercedes for you. He hears your prayers and delivers them to His Father on behalf of you. He is with you. God with us on this journey. And not only is He with you on the journey, not only did He set you on the path by saving you and giving you new life, but He helps you to walk through this life. And not only that, He helps you with the destination. He has gone to prepare a place for us. And He has given us all of the heavenly riches in Christ. We can spend an entire lifetime, an entire eternity unpacking all of what I just said. All of what He has really given us. And yet we are blind to it sometimes. We are blind to His love. He wants to walk with us daily. The Spirit wants to guide us daily. The Father wants to bless us daily. What's holding you back? What's keeping you from daily fellowship and joy in Christ? Now the question is, now what's the application, Pastor? What are you, you going to give us? What's the how? Right? I'm not going to give you something to do this morning. Because I know your heart and I know my heart. We are incurably religious. We will try to work for things. And so I don't want to give you principles of what you need to do this morning. I simply want to remind you of what has been done for you and ask you to believe it. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's for you. He loves you. He died for you. He wants to walk with you through your mountains and your valleys, through your difficulties and your triumphs. Don't set him aside to live the American dream. Don't set him aside to live an empty, religious, Christian life. We can't wake up a day and get out of our bed without Jesus next to us, without being close to him. That's the activation that God wants to work in our lives, first and foremost. To captivate your heart to follow Christ daily, as you never have before. I love verse 12 in chapter 3 of Philippians. 
I read it once. I'll read it again. You might have missed it. It emphasizes my point about believing what he has done for you. This is where Paul went. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. He's made you his own. Paul said in the first chapter of this book, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You have to believe, friends. The Christian life is all about belief. And I'm starting to realize this more and more and more. Just the belief is what changes us. It's not so much the doing. It is the belief. It's the belief that God put a spirit in you that is not going to fail. That will change you. That will root sin out of your life. That will give you joy that you never thought you could have. That will heal your marriage. That will redeem a broken relationship that you have that will bring you back from whatever sin you've committed in the past. It is the belief that He has paid for your sin and that one day you will be with God in heaven. The believing in Jesus does it all. This morning, as our deacons come forward, I want to close this message. I want our invitation to actually be the Lord's Supper this morning. So if our deacons could come forward right now. We're going to observe the Lord's Supper this morning because it's an opportunity for us to draw closer to Christ, to be one body. The Lord's Supper is a symbolic meal that pictures the blood and the body of Jesus. The blood poured out for us, the body broken for us. It's a meal for baptized believers, followers of Christ. And we're also given a warning in 1 Corinthians that we need to be right with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we need to discern the body and then we need to make sure that we don't have anything between us and somebody else in the body. And so this morning, if you've got something, maybe, maybe you're mad at somebody, maybe you're angry, maybe there's an issue that hasn't been resolved. You can go get that person right then. You can go out in the hallway, or you can and work it out with them, or you can forgive them in your heart. Maybe somebody did something to you years ago that you still haven't forgiven them for. We are one body in Christ. And this is an opportunity this morning for us to remember Him. That every single person in this room that knows Christ, they're here because of the goodness of Jesus. Amen? What we're going to do is we're going to... Deacons, you can go ahead and and we can um, get ready. You're going to walk down front and uh, receive these elements. And you can walk back to your seat. We're going to watch a video about Jesus, and you can just think and and reflect uh, during that time. And at the close of this video, we'll pray together and we'll take this meal as one body. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness. I pray that you would help us to be captivated today as we prepare to take this meal. Help us to remember your body broken for us, your blood spilled for us, your sacrifice on our behalf, and help us to look forward also in joy to the day the marriage supper of the Lamb where we will feast with you in heaven. 
God, you've done so much in our lives. And I pray this morning, if there's somebody that doesn't know Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that today would be the day they'd be saved. That they would come and talk to me. They would grab another pastor, a deacon, some leader in the church, and say, I need to be saved today. What do I need to do? Or maybe right now in their chair, they would trust Christ. They would ask right now that Jesus would save them based on what He did on the cross for them. And so as we prepare to reflect and receive this meal, will You bless us and will You draw near to us? In Christ's name we pray. Amen.